This is Truth Jihad Radio, and we're talking about end times, eschatology, and world takeover conspiracies with Adam Green. If you like this kind of radio, please do subscribe at Substack by way of kevinbarrett.substack.com, or you can find the subscribe at Substack button by way of my website, truthjihad.com. But Christianity and, I believe, Islam also kind of uphold the Ten Commandments, right? And that's what it says to do, is to uh, destroy all idol worship, smash up... Actually, no, I, I, I'm... I, well, there's no reference, direct reference to the specific Ten Commandments in the Quran. Uh, however, if we look at what those Ten Commandments are, uh, yeah, I think we would all agree with them. I mean, a great many non-religious people, Buddhists, atheists, Hindus, uh, Zoroastrians, would tend to agree with most of them, too, wouldn't they? Well, sure, people can, can agree on, on all types of things. Um, doesn't mean they're necessarily... Uh, true. Here was one other thing I wanted to show, like uh, the Vilna Gaon. He's the top Kabbalist, 1700s. This is long before Herzl, Ben Gurion, any of the secular uh, Zionist movement. And he was all about the redemption of the land was the highest concern for Gil Vilna Gaon and his disciples. They saw it as a force focus of the human activity during the decisive first stage of the redemption. And the settlement of the land of Israel was not a means to promote Jewish political freedom or economic prosperity, but an end itself so that the third temple might be built and all humanity brought to acknowledge the dominion of the king, king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he. So I, I, I still disagree. I, I acknowledge there was secular involvement. There, it, they kind of like to portray it as secular because that appeals to secular people they appeal to both the secular side and the religious side they appeal to the christians as well they appeal to the jews obviously for religious or for you know secular anti-semitism reasons also and also the rothschilds followed the biblical script it, the the prophecy was that they would plant vineyards and grow wine and the rothschilds funded something called bilu which was a movement the goal to agriculture settlement of the land of Israel. That's how they started, too. Oh, we're just going to, you know, have some little vineyards here and look at what that blew up into. And that was funded by the, the Rothschilds also. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. you mentioned monotheists. You said the Jews aren't really quite true monotheists. Christianity and Islam are universalists, which is true. And they're supremacists. I think that clash is d by design. But... You're aware that top rabbis view Christianity and Islam, Islam in particular, as a Noahide-compliant religion, right? Mm, yes, I've seen that. And I guess my attitude towards that differs somewhat from yours in that you see that as a sort of oppressive thing where these rabbis are planning to create a, a global dictatorship that will enforce these Noahide laws as the basis of all law. And first, I don't see that as a very likely um, possibility, because I, as I see it, what the world is really threatened by right now is Western secular liberal 
hegemony, neoliberalism. They're trying, and they're trying to uh, basically. It's and this is a materialist philosophy. So that's the real threat. That's the the you know the, the big powerful institutions, the Pentagon, the World Economic Fund, the big uh, the big banksters of Basel, Switzerland, uh, the the people who join the CFR and the Trilateral Commission, and this basically the people who run the world are atheists who are trying to impose a kind of neoliberalism that benefits themselves and their power and uh, wipes out all traditional cultures and religions everywhere it goes and would wipe out the Jewish ones just as much as any others. That's the real uh, enemy of humanity right now. And I, so I, I think these uh, that's the brand of messianic millenarianism, which, yes, it's spun off, I suppose, it's some, in some way from Judaism, but it's, it's radically anti-religious. And uh, and again, that's, I think, the real threat. And these Chabad people, you know, saying they would love to have Noahide laws and so on and so forth. Come on, Adam. Do you really think that there's one chance in 10 trillion that in our lifetimes or our children's lifetimes, there will be some sort of imposition of Noahide laws on any on the planet? I mean, they, don't even, they can't even get them imposed on the state of Israel right now. And then if you actually look at what the Noahide laws are, what's what's wrong with them? I mean, this, I, they're basically mostly just sort of standard things that a lot of reasonable people would agree with and that wouldn't really impose on anybody else. So, I mean, to me, the whole thing is is really, I think I think you're blowing that issue up way too much. I don't think we're threatened by no-hide laws. We'll never have anybody ramming them down our throats. And even if we somehow did, which will never happen in a million years, that wouldn't be the, a very bad thing compared to the bad things that the neoliberal atheists have in store for us. Well, I, I disagree. Um, and I see the saying, oh, it's it's the Marxists, it's the secularists, it's it's the atheists that are the problem. I see that as just pointing out one side of the dialectic. It's like saying um, communism and Marxism are the problem, not not Zionism. I, I see them as kind of two sides of the same coin. And and yes, uh, you know, I point out both sides of the dialectic. And, and yes, Noahide laws. I do see as a threat. It, it seems far-fetched now, but they have, they're have they very determined. They have a long-term goal. They have two hundred year, 220 years left before the 6,000 years of uh, creation are, are over. They're pushing them heavy. Oh, they're trying to get them in schools with these moments of silence that they did in Arizona and Florida. All 50 states are acknowledging the Rebbe and, and Noahide laws. Since Bush, they've been signing it every year, the Education Day, which includes um, verbiage about the Noahide laws. They are very determined with this. Look at what they've been able to do just with Schofield and uh, Darby reference Bibles just in the last hundred years, getting Christianity to be um, pretty virulently anti-Semitic towards being very philo-Semitic. If they're able to accomplish that, if they're able to you know, have two major world wars and then Israel is birthed out of that and then they rise to be a power of the nations, I wouldn't downplay their um, ability to pull these things off. And I'll, already I see, I mean, rabbis brag about the Noahide movement exploding and it's it's they're already halfway there by being christians by being muslims they're like maimonides says in the 12th century they're already a stepping stone they're it's a, a prog a stage towards the messianic age so it's it's preparing the world for the messianic age and um 
Well, if, if you know, maybe we won't be around in the 200 or whatever years it'll take them to try to finish their project. So maybe, you know, if, <laughs> if it, maybe you're right. I don't know what's going to happen. They got the Abrahamic years, Accords. That's what this is about. They got the interfaith um, oh, no, complex. That's a joke. Yeah, Abrahamic Dabi. Accords is a complete joke. Yeah, Abrahamic Accords is is basically a bunch of atheists getting together. It's all bullshit. I mean, do you really think that uh, Kushner is uh, is actually religious? I mean, do, do you think that the mm-hmm. king of Saudi Arabia, so, I mean, the 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 prince of uh, of the UAE is is openly campaigning against Islam and against religion, and so so is the king of Saudi Arabia. These so called Abrahamic Accords are atheistic accords. You know, they, they, it's between a bunch of secular atheist Zionists and a bunch of secular atheist billionaire Sybarite playboy Arabs who pretend to be Muslim. Um, but that has nothing to do with religion that I can see. Uh, I don't know what's in the hearts of Kushner or David Friedman or, or uh, all these people that were involved with the Abraham Accords or maybe all the people that were involved with it that their names aren't getting the recognition for it. But I, I see the, the threat from all these secular groups also, but I definitely see a very serious threat from the religious aspects, too. And, I mean, you can't downplay the impact that Christianity and Islam has played on the last 2,000 and... 1300 years respectively yeah i I think it's been a very very positive overall impact adam very very positive it's it's It's, given uh, the world it's jews are so powerful because of these two things no no jews jews have have basically spent the last 2000 years contained uh by uh the christian and islamic power structures protected and uh and Christianity and Islam as universal monotheisms have taken, you know, at Athens uh, to Jerusalem and protected the classical heritage of Western thought and, and philosophy. And the, uh, under universal monotheism, both Islam and Christianity have reached uh, quite amazing heights. And I think they've also done what Rene Girard has uh, written about, which is that they have made significant inroads against the ubiquity of human sacrifice as the very basis of human social solidarity. Rene Girard is a brilliant anthropologist who played out this this uh, theory of his, which is actually, I wouldn't call it a theory, it's just an obvious fact that the basis of traditional human social solidarity is basically lynching scapegoats. And he saw pagan religion as basically emerging from a situation where uh, when the community, because of the clash of mimetic desires, ends up at each other's throats in a sort of Hobbesian war of all against all, and the community is about to totally break down in massive universal bloodshed, at that point, everybody turns against a scapegoat and they lynch him. And that brings the community back together and releases the bad energy, and suddenly there's harmony. And so then they build a statue uh, to that that guy that they lynched, and he becomes their pagan god. And then every year they shed some blood in front of that statue, whether it's human blood, as so many groups throughout the world, in the Mesoamerican world and around the Mediterranean world and in Africa still today, still through this ubiquity of pagan human sacrifice as the basic uh, force holding human groups together uh, is something that Gerard really shows us clearly. And that has been rolled back by the Abrahamic tradition because Abraham refused to sacrifice his son. Now, there's still a lot of child sacrifice going on. Pizzagate is probably true, although I don't know if those particular restaurants are doing it. But there is child molestation and sacrifice 
place at the highest level of the global court, atheist and satanic elites. And that's just a continuation of stuff that's been going on for a very long time, and that has been greatly rolled back by the progress of universal Abrahamic monotheism, especially in, in its uh, Islamic and, and to a great extent, Christian configurations. And Girard, of course, emphasized the, the, the Christian pushback against human sacrifice with essentially, you just sacrificed this guy, but that was actually God you sacrificed. Oh, my, you know, that's the... <laughs> uh, and so that's a way of slapping people awake that their sacrifice of the scapegoat that holds their community together is evil, okay? Uh, and Christianity makes that very clear with its core myth. And Islam uh, also, by making the feast of the sacrifice, that is the feast of the end of all human sacrifice as its central holiday, uh, and also by working against the uh, mimetic desire, that is by having people be modest, uh, by giving charity, by not accumulating wealth, by not showing off, by not engaging in any sexual communications in, in public, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you get a world where there isn't so much of this people at each other's throats because of this mimetic desire going out of control. So Islam, like Christianity, has to made a lot of progress against the problem of this scapegoating and human sacrifice that's at the very core of all human societies, as explained by Rene Girard. Christianity is a religion based upon human sacrifice or just any type of scapegoat sacrifice. No, the sacrifice, it's a sacrifice to end all sacrifice. I, but so, a sacrifice to end all sacrifices is still a religion based on sacrifice. That's the point I'm trying to make. And uh, you said, mm -hmm. I yeah. don't know if you misspoke or if, uh, you said Abraham refused to sacrifice his son? Well, I should say, I, yeah, I misspoke. God, God uh, working through Abraham, mm -hmm. helped Abraham not sacrifice his son. And uh, I see it as just, I don't think Abraham or any of these patriarchs ex existed. I think the idea that God wanted him to sacrifice his son and, and have, you know, chop off your foreskin and cut up these animals and drag a torch through it to have a covenant. I think even just like entertaining these Jewish myths and playing along with this paradigm plays into the hands of the Jews because they, they believe Abra all the nations will be blessed through Abraham. And that's where the Esau and the Ishmael come in as these other side religions and but they're right. They're right, Adam. They're actually right, because the world is being blessed through Abraham through the end of human sacrifice as the central mechanism of holding human social groups together. The ending human sacrifice to hold social groups to, together. I, I mean, it, we can end human sacrifices without having the Jews to tell us how to do it. I think we would have done that without the Bible uh, on our own. Um, one other point I, I forgot to mention earlier, too, you said that they can't even enforce Noahide laws on, on Israel. That's, that's not really getting it because Israel is supposed to be Jews and only the Noahides are going to be their servants there. And the Jews are not supposed to follow the Noahides. They, they follow the 613 mitzvahs. The, the Noahide laws are for the nations, not for Israel. So I don't... 
So now that, that's pretty interesting. But I mean, how many, how many, of Jew, what percentage of the Western Jewish population is actually following the 713 mitzvahs? I mean, I, I think this is all kind of, you know, fantasy. This whole, this whole thing is, is a, a big extremist fantasy that has zero chance of ever being implemented in reality. Hey, I think it's all fantasy too, but this fantasy has dominated our humanity for the last 2000 years. So I, no, I, I disagree. I, I, I think the universal monotheism, yes, has had a powerful influence on humanity. And as I said, has rolled back the ubiquitous practice of human sacrifice globally, as Rene Girard pointed out. Uh, and that's been basically good. But the, the continuation of this tiny number of tribal monotheists who refuse to make the full step to universal monotheism. And yeah, there are people who call themselves Jews who actually are universal monotheists. Uh, my friend Douglas Rushkoff, you know, people like that. Sure, there are some of them. Uh, even maybe Rabbi Michael Lerner to a certain extent. But uh, overall, that the people who call themselves Jews are those who haven't made it yet to universal monotheism. And, and they're, But they're not, they haven't dominated everything for 2,000 years. Yeah, they've had a little extra, you know, tribal power, a little extra tribal money uh, compared to their numbers. I'm not but saying they, the Jews yeah, have dominated uh, for 2,000 I mean, years. I'm saying well, their mythologies yeah. have dominated. Yeah, I, I think I, I think the mythology changes though when you get to universal monotheism. Certainly, Islam it changes it. The, the mythology in Islam is quite different from the mythology in in Judaism, and I think likewise that's that's also true with, with Christianity. So I, I don't think that what we're calling Judaism today, uh, or what you would call Judaism or the Hebrew tribal thing, you know, twenty five hundred years ago. I think that's actually been pretty marginal. It's only retained importance because the people who stubbornly insist on refusing to become universal monotheists have managed to build very powerful uh, social bonds uh, between themselves, and they become incredibly uh, ethnocentric and use that as uh, plus some selective breeding to uh, become a very, very wealthy and powerful tribe. Uh, here you write, he doesn't say, this you're talking about the rabbi, he doesn't say anything about Jews ruling over enslaving non-Jews. He doesn't say it in that clip, but this is the whole idea of Esau, the elders shall serve the younger, Esau sh shall serve Jacob. That's Christians or Gentiles serving the Jews. And uh, you say, I suppose you could interpret this wish for Muslims and Christians to join the Jewish people as converting them to Judaism. No, they definitely don't want the Gentiles to convert to Judaism. They're opposed to that. They want the Christians and Muslims to worship their God, though, and to believe they are God's chosen people as Noahides. And by joining the Jewish people, they the, the verse that they cite is grabbing onto the tassels of their shirts and following them and following their ways and worshiping of their God. If you can convince the whole world that your myths are true and that your God is the one true God of the universe and that, that your ancient prophets are the only ones that have the authority to speak for this all-powerful God. It's incredibly powerful um, mind control. You say three branches of monotheism living in harmony under God. That, that's what the Jews want. That's the Jewish agenda. So... I think as well, a Christian well, what, or as a Muslim, with... you don't see how nefarious that is because you kind of um, almost want the same thing, but just slightly different. Well, you know, if, if some crazy rabbi uh, from among this group of, you know, 14 million, 15 million people out of the nearly 4 billion 
Abrahamic monotheists. If if so, if if, if a couple of tribal rabbis representing this this very marginal and insignificant group among Abrahamic monotheists wants to take credit for the, for instance, you know, for my uh, having access to praying uh, to the the one uh, God, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and for being able to use the uh, blessed uh, discourses and rituals that have come down to me through this universal monotheistic tradition that I practice, if he wants to take credit for that, fine. I mean, why do I care? I mean, it's it's, it's silly. It's like the, the rooster taking credit for the dawn. But so what? I mean, if, if these people are crazy enough to think that, you know, they're God's gift to the universe and everything good that's happened, uh, including things that are really very different from what they do in Islam and Christianity are very different. If they want to take credit for these things, whatever, you know, I mean, who cares? They're very different because Esau is the antithesis to Jacob. It's supposed to be different, but they've got far more in common than they'd have disagree on. Basically, the only disagreement is if Jesus is the Messiah and if the Messiah is a divine figure or not. But you really can't write this off as just, you know, a couple fringe rabbis. Like, this is Maimonides. This is the top sage in Judaism that says that this is Christianity, Islam are part of God's plan and preparing the world for the messianic age. And you write here uh, uh, on the clip with Shmuley Boteak strikes me as he says, they're chosen to bring the Torah to the world. And you said, this is innocuous, his view of chosenness as a mission to spread the knowledge of God and the biblical laws, the Mosaic law on the whole world contrasts favorably with other more arrogant interpretations. I don't find this as innocuous. They, they try to frame it as innocuous and as a noble thing. But for Jews to say, oh, we're chosen to be a light into the nations and to spread the Torah and to make everybody moral, you're, you're really saying you want everybody to, to be under your thumb and to, to worship the God that chose you. I, I find that very problematic. Wouldn't you agree? Getting the whole yeah, world to worship I, I your I, God and your myths. I don't, and, don't Adam. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I out of you know, I've, I've done secular religious studies. I have a PhD, you know, and that's related to my Arabic and Islamic studies. And you know, if you talk to a Buddhist, and that Buddhist feels like he has uh, a certain approach to truth that really should be you know universally acknowledged and it would be the world would be so much better if everybody could recognize that the root of suffering is desire and that the that liberation from desire brings liberation from suffering and that there is a way to achieve liberation from desire and thereby achieve uh, ecstasy and uh, liberation from suffering and that this message and these practices are so important that the world will be so much better when I teach these things to the whole world. Do I think that Buddhist is trying to conquer the world and enslave me? Of course not. And I feel the same way when I talk to a, at least a sophisticated you know, a Hindu, a Hindu who's risen above uh, their pagan origins, uh, which are, again, all rooted in human sacrifice. And look at the way they're sacrificing Christians and Muslims in India right now. But if you talk to a more sophisticated Upanishads kind of Hindu, and he'll tell you, he'll, he'll have this spiritual discourse and practices that he thinks would make your life a lot better if you practice them and would make the world a lot better if they were ever more widely practiced. In other words, he thinks he's got the truth. And 
fine. God bless him. I mean, a lot of, uh, especially with these universal uh, spiritual traditions, part of the part of the game that you can't really escape from completely is that you know when you discover something extremely valuable that will help people if they learn it and will be give us a better world if we practice it, um, such as ending scapegoating and human sacrifice for a really obvious example, or uh, getting some non-attachment to the, the ego that desires evil, which we do through our Islamic practice and which the Buddhists do through their Buddhist practice and Hindus through their practice and Taoists through their practice. Having this kind of really valuable teaching uh, and wanting to share it with the world is just part of a lot of people's, probably the majority of people's religious experience. And so when I hear these rabbis talking, yeah, I, I admit that there's some truth to what you're saying, that there is a virulent element there that you know you, you see more of in some cases, less of in others, that can spin out of control into a kind of monstrous satanic cosmic egotism and, and lust for, for power and domination. And we do see that in um, among some of these Jewish Messianic millenarian people that you've analyzed. But I also see a lot of just standard religious discourse. You know, here's here's a religious discourse that can make your life better if you get the truth of it and if you practice this religious practice. And to me, those things are basically good, not bad. I don't think you can compare Hindus or Buddhists with Jews and Judaism because they don't have the prophecies. They don't have the type of dogmas. They don't have the type of end times uh, agendas. Uh, l let me ask you, from the Muslim perspective, what do you think um, is going to happen in the end times? Well, you know, I came to Islam largely through the work of Rene Ganon and the traditionalists. And they uh, have studied many different religions. Uh, I think certain aspects of mystical Hinduism had a particularly strong influence on Guinot. And so he accepts the notion of the Kali Yuga, which is uh, a kind of a, an end times vision that holds that there are these cosmic cycles of uh, birth and growth and then decay and then finally death. And that we're basically really close to the point of death uh, in this cosmic cycle. And that's what the end times really are, a moment of death, which will then be followed, of course, by a rebirth. And so uh, I think that basically Ganon and the traditionalists are right, that uh, an element of truth has found its way into many different religious traditions, and we accept this in Islam, uh, saying that there are you know, these thousands of prophets who have been legitimate uh, messengers of God to all these different peoples. And when we look at end times prophecies from a wide variety of these traditions, we see a lot of similarities. And personally, the eschatologist that's had the strongest influence on me is Ron Hussein. He uh, has his own particular view of the end times, uh, which you know I'm, I'm not identifying completely with all of the details of his map of the political world and what he thinks is the current you know run up to the end times. Uh, but basically, what what I see is the forces of the demonic uh, and the satanic uh, rising up 
to uh, kind of unparalleled prominence in the world, especially at the heights of political, social, and economic power, and that the the what forces of God uh, will be called to essentially have a kind of a spiritual battle with them, uh, and ultimately the forces of God will win, but perhaps in the form of a destruction of the current age uh, of Kali Yuga and a rebirth of a of a new age uh, and a an age of growth that's coming. Kali Yuga is not in the Quran or in of course not in Islamic <laughs> no. sources. So no, but but again, I, I, Adam, I, th- I think that that the well, certainly the mystics, or at least the best mystics from all traditions, have seen very very similar things, and uh, likewise to a certain extent with some of the the end times uh, visions as well. The the Jews and many Christians believe that there will be a Armageddon war of Gog and Magog, where Esau and Ishmael will mutually destroy each other, and, and that's that being Christianity and Islam have a, a major uh, World War Three, where Israel is uh, is the ultimate victor with God's God's help. Why would God want a satanic war with mass death and suffering and spiritual battle? What why would he want a satanic power to rise up in this end times prophecies to uh, it, why is that part of his plan? Well, I don't I don't agree with those Jewish uh, authors like Abarbano, who seem to be saying that the Jews should deliberately manipulate the Christians and the Muslims into fighting an apocalyptic war that will destroy themselves, leaving the world to be dominated by Jews. Uh, Barbanel was really the first uh, to say this. And of course, that's why Netanyahu's father wrote that, you know, essentially lionized Barbanel and wrote a book about him. And Netanyahu and that strain of Zionism, I think very much, which is they're, they're atheists, but they've sort of accepted this mythology that the role of the Jews is to trick the Christians and the Muslims into destroying each other so that we Jews can then rule whatever is left. Now, I don't agree with that interpretation, obviously. In fact, I think that's a demonic interpretation. I think these people are the satanic, demonically inspired people that good people are being asked to rise up and do spiritual battle with right now. But you ask then, well, why, why do we even have to do spiritual battle with the forces of evil in the first place? And yeah, that's a that's a tough question. The Quran answers this the basic uh, problem here. The Quran gives us this scene where God created Adam, <laughs> the, the first human, and the Satan, uh, who was a jinn or a spirit of fire, uh, was horrified. He was, and then when God ordered the jinn and the angels to bow down to Adam, Satan refused and said, uh, why should I bow down to this horrible creature who's going to spread blood, shed blood on the earth? And then, you know, God said, well, I know what you don't know. And uh, so get down, get down to hell and be condemned. And the S- Satan then said, well, can you give me a reprieve so that I can tempt and try to mislead this human creature? And God said, uh, yes, go for it. Um, you know, if, if you can mislead him, then he will deserve where he ends up. <laughs> and so this I see as a kind of a mythological, you know, because it's a narrative, it's a sacred narrative, so we can call it mythological. It's a, it's a, uh, an, an allegorical and mythological uh, explanation 
of uh, of the fact that when God gave us free, put free will into the universe, that allowed for all possibilities, the good ones and the evil ones, and by giving the universe, including especially the human being and perhaps other human like sentient creatures, this uh, freedom of choice that then led to the inevitability of a significant uh, choice towards evil on the part of some created beings. And so that means that God gave this test. And the Quran actually makes it very clear that that is what's going on, that we are undergoing a spiritual test. And so the hardships that we go through, the temptations that, that the shaitan al-Bilah puts in front of us, and the challenges that we face in having to rise up and be courageous enough to fight against the forces of evil and expose ourselves to all kinds of hardship, suffering, and danger in doing so, this is part of the test and the path of spiritual growth that we were created for. And so the best approach is to submit to God, embrace that path, and do the very best that we can. I don't think it sounds very realistic for a loving, all-powerful God to find it necessary to test us with, you know, mass wars and Kali Yuga and destruction of the world and, and stuff. You you describe the story of Adam and the 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 jinn and the angels. So you believe these are allegorical stories, or these are historical event events that really happened in the last couple thousand years? Well, well uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says clearly in the Quran in a couple of different places that what really matters is the what you, we might call the allegorical meaning or, or the symbolic meaning, the meaning with a capital M, right, rather than the superficial, quote, historical details. Uh, for instance, in Surah Al-Kaf, uh, Allah tells us that the People dispute about the sleepers of the cave, how many of them there were, you know, and how, when they when you and they had their dog with them. So how many were there when you include their dog? All these little details. And then he goes the same sort of thing in the Surah Al-Baqarah about the Jews uh, arguing about what kind of cow do you want us to sacrifice? What color and what size and this and that and the other. All of this stupid focusing on meaningless details when there's a clear meaningful message, call it symbolic, call it allegorical, call it what you want, but it's it's got meaning. It's not just a bunch of superficial details about what supposedly happened in the past. Who cares about just a, a random list of superficial details about what supposedly happened in the past? Who cares about that? What matters is meaning. God makes that really clear in Quran. And and so that when I think all of Quran has to be read that way. Now that doesn't mean that you reject stuff and say, Oh, that never happened. It's just allegory. No, it's best the best way to take it is to just kind of yeah, well I'll just accept at some level this really happened, but of course the main focus is on the meaning with a capital M. Throughout history, the majority of religious people believe that these things did happen. I don't think it's some insignificant, you know, it doesn't matter if, if it really did happen or if it's just an allegory. Like, it makes a big difference. If it's just an allegory and it's a myth, that means somebody made it up with a, a motive, with an agenda in mind. And uh, if it never really happened, then these things have no legitimacy to them. They're just stories uh, made up to um, get people to believe them. I think it's very important well, whether so it happened or you're not. You're underestimating the power. If Jesus of didn't really live and die and resurrect, you don't think that's important to Christians or not? If he didn't live and exist, then the religion's based on a lie, in my view. 
Well, you know, that's a great example to bring up because that's another case where the Quran makes it very clear that this uh, accepting with absolute faith that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is not where it's at. This is what this is where, again, as I mentioned in Islam, we believe that the earlier scriptures were tampered with by human hands and things they got things wrong. And in the case of the So why doesn't uh, God step in and, and set the record straight? Why is he hiding? Why well, he is does. He That's what the Quran is. The Quran sets the record straight on the death of Jesus. But what it sets straight at him is it says basically what it's telling us is that what's important about Jesus uh, is that he uh, he's well he's a, he's a messenger of truth and the truth is that we live in a just universe and so there's no way that a just god is going to well number one the whole idea of god having a son you know subhanahu wa ta'ala that, that that's ridiculous um and and uh i think being a prophet is is just as i agree that having a, a son of god or taking a, the god you know coming on earth like that is ridiculous but i think people that claim to speak for god it's the same thing just just as likely but sorry i interrupted go ahead and we'll we'll wrap it up here i know we're getting close uh, we're over time Okay, and, and I've managed to finally alienate my Christian viewers here by you know coming to this one point where where Islam and the Quran you know differ significantly from most traditional Christianity. Maybe not the Unitarian so much, but uh, anyway, uh, I, I apologize if I'm hurting anybody's feelings. But uh oh, God's oneness. Uh, just intuitively makes sense to me. And the notion of a human God, whether it's a bearded guy in the, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel or a father, a son, much less a Holy Ghost and sort of stuff, just is obviously strikes me as, as complete mystification and absurdity. So I apologize for being a Unitarian and a Muslim, but hey, that's that's who I am. Well, welcome to the club of uh, offending Christians. I, I do a lot of that <laughs> here. Um, yeah, I noticed. Um, so... Let's uh, we're, we're getting at the end of time here, and uh, I just wanted to read just the last uh, closing paragraph that you have here. You say the Torah that exists today has been corrupted. I, I see this as, oh, it's not the Torah that's the problem. It's only the interpretation or it's been it's been corrupted. I wonder why doesn't, uh, you know, a, a divine book that's so easily corrupted. I find that problematic in itself. But you say here the rabbis and Adam Green's videos are not exactly the biggest problem facing humanity today. Even in these cherry-picked clips, they're not cherry-picked. This is all over the internet. It, you can't hide, can't can't miss it, can't hide from it. Uh, designed to foster alarmism. I'm just trying to wake people up to the Jewish agenda, what these rabbis believe, what their prophecies are. I wouldn't call that alarmism, but I do think people should be alarmed by their agenda, so... Fair enough. There is plenty of good alongside the bad and the ugly. I think the ugly far outweighs any of the good that may be there. And you say here, you want to sit down with the rabbis, turn the tables on them, and argue that it isn't the goyim who need to embrace Noahide laws. It's the Talmudic Jews who need to embrace the universal monotheism. And that's their same goal. So you guys have the same exact goal as having the whole world worship the one God of Abraham. So you guys have uh, some uh, serious agreements there. And they do agree. You're well, actually, actually, Adam, in, in, in Islam, uh, we are not 
uh, trying to force convert people for the most part. The tradition in Islam was generally to allow for and encourage uh, and protect religious minorities. And I think that should be the focus, especially of all Islamic political movements in the future. Uh, there's a terrific uh, book out on the covenants of the Prophet Muhammad uh, by John Andrew Morrow that I urge people to check out uh, about bringing us back to that tradition of protecting other religions and other faiths. I think ultimately Islam will be the protector and defender of all authentic traditional religions. And I would include traditional Judaism as one of them. Uh, the, the kind I admire is the Naturae Karta kind. Um, and I also admire certain other uh, more universalist interpretations of Judaism. And ultimately, I see Islam's role as to do battle with the various manifestations of, uh, of Satanism and the demonic, uh, above all the liberal, uh, secular, humanist, materialist paradigm that the military machine is trying to impose on the whole earth at the price of apocalypse uh, and uh, protect all traditional faiths and so we can find out as you know Rumi's parable of a blind man and the elephant you know which which of us has which uh, piece of this truth that is greater than we can possibly ever express Allahu Akbar God's truth is greater than any possible human expression of it that's what Allahu Akbar means you know the Christians shouldn't even be offended by you. Doesn't doesn't the Quran say that Jesus is the Messiah? It says he is the Moshiach, right? Absolutely, Jesus is is the one and only Messiah, and we Muslims pray for his return. And do you believe one day that the whole world will be Muslim? No, we believe that the whole world is Muslim in a sense with a small m. The word Muslim just means submitting to God. And there's a sense in which everything is submitted to God, but there's also that free will element in existence that allows for the refusal to submit to God and uh, to rebel against God and to you know swim against the current and be perverse and so on and so will, forth. Will God allow uh, people to resist him forever? Or will there be a time when there will only be God-fearing Muslims? On the, on That's a great theological question, Adam, and it's way above my pay grade. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, very interesting talk. This was the follow-up from uh, when I was on Dr. Kevin Barrett's show a couple weeks ago. You guys can check out at Un's Review where he publishes um, and read the whole article for yourself if you want to. I definitely enjoyed the uh, conversation. I've talked to many Christians about this, but you're the first uh, Muslim that I've got to engage in this discussion. Um, why don't you tell us uh, some of your other, where they can see your show, your other websites, all those, those uh, links before we close it out. Yeah, probably the first place to go would be my Substack, which is Kevin Barrett. That's K-E-V-I-N-B-A-R-R-E-T-T dot Substack dot com. And then you can also find a lot of my stuff at the UNS Review, UNZ.com. And then there's the, if you want to see my sermons, I do these uh, Islamic sermons every week, and they get put up at the Kidria YouTube channel, which is K-H-I-D-R-I-A, the Kidria YouTube channel. And that one, they haven't uh, given me strikes or taken down yet. What does that mean, Kidria? <laughs> oh, it's it's a reference to uh, Sayyidina al-Khadir, who is the, the green the green prophet of uh, Quranic legend. All right. Well, again, thank you, Dr. Kevin Barrett. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Sorry I didn't get to any of the super chats today. I got to close it out because I'm already way over time with Kevin. Appreciate all your time. Thank you again for having me on. I'll have to talk to you again sometime. 
And uh, please check out some of my videos. I'll send you some links uh, to if you're interested in exploring any more into this idea. And look forward to seeing all of your comments. This will be up on BitChute and Odyssey. And I will see you guys all again back in a few days, but also guest on next week from Truth Hurts Radio. Mr. Charles Giuliani will be on discussing. Uh, he agrees with me, basically, on Christianity as a, as a Jewish psyop. So stay tuned for that. Thank you again, Ke- Kevin. Thank you, everybody, for watching. And I will see you all again very soon. Take care.
go back crying. 